This is First Farragut United Methodist Church's podcast. Thanks for joining us as we continue with our worship series, New Beginnings. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, once said that when Jesus returned from his wilderness experience, he had been abundantly strengthened after his conflict. Jesus stands ready to abundantly strengthen us, too. And now, here's Martha with our message. Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, as recorded in the New Revised Standard Version. This reading introduces the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry and his return to Nazareth. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Then he said to them, today this scripture has been filled in your hearing. We are in our fourth week of a sermon series entitled New Beginnings, which is rather fitting in January. I planned that, by the way. We are in this series of New Beginnings, retracing some of the earliest scriptures or stories or teachings that we have of Jesus in the New Testament, in in the four gospels that we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are the biography of sorts that tell us about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. We're doing this because it's easy for us to forget when Jesus came the first time as a human, he was bringing a radical new beginning for the people of the ancient world, and frankly, Jesus should bring a radical new beginning to us as well. Each time Jesus taught or spoke, or modeled something. It required the people to change their way of thinking, to change their worldview, to maybe cultivate a new understanding of who God is and how God works. So far through this series, we've looked at stories of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, 
That was the one where the wise men came to visit the two-year-old toddler, Jesus. We looked at the story of Jesus' baptism. I think we looked at that through the Gospel of Luke. I can't remember. Um, we saw in Jesus' baptism that God does, that, that baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace, meaning a new life. Baptism symbolizes the new life that we've committed to in following Jesus. And then last week, we looked at the story of Jesus' first miracle, the water into wine. Today, we're going back to the Gospel of Luke, where Luke begins Jesus' ministry with a sermon. One began with a miracle, one began with a sermon. Which would you rather have? Careful how you answer that. I have the power to make this short or long. I'm kidding. But today, um, in the story the Gospel of Luke... What we're told is, it is, is after Jesus' baptism, and what we didn't read, Jesus was whisked away to a time of temptation or testing, a, a, day, a, a period of 40 days. And he returned from this time, as we read, filled with the power of the Spirit. And in this returning and beginning of his ministry in Galilee with a sermon, with words, Jesus made some pretty bold claims. Today's sermon and next week's sermon actually could be parts one and part two of the same sermon and same story because we'll finish the rest of this scripture next week. But it's in these words that Jesus began to challenge the status quo. So set up a little bit of context here. He's in the region called Galilee. Now Galilee was a region that was a little bit bigger than Knoxville, a little bit smaller than Nashville, about 300 square miles. And Jesus began going around to the towns within this region of Galilee, and he would go to the synagogues where he would begin to teach and share what he had to say. Now, some things are a little bit lost on us because I don't know about you, but I'm not a first century Jewish historian, but I do know enough to be dangerous somewhat. But what's lost on us is the practice of when they would gather for teaching and worship in the synagogues is that very similar to today, like we have someone reading scripture, they would do the same thing. They would have someone stand and read from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then from the prophets, which is what Jesus read from, and probably from the wisdom or the poetry of, of what we call the Old Testament, which to them was the Hebrew Bible. And they were in little scrolls. They weren't bound books like we have today, individual scrolls. And so they had these readings from these different genres. Very much similar to today, we have what's called a lectionary, which is a cycle of readings, a three- or four-year cycle that's designed to take us through the entire biblical story in three or four years. Some of you who are participating in our Bible reading uh, plans have learned what the lectionary is. And if you're doing the uh, Read Together plan through the Holston Conference, you familiarize yourself with these different genres. They had very similar practices, the Jewish tradition, in the first century. The person who would be reading, however, didn't know that they were reading that day, usually. I happen to know that some folks are comfortable standing in front of people and some are not, and so therefore I know who we're going to have reading. But here's the thing. Oftentimes, when one of the people would read for the day, they would also preach. So next week, I don't know who our scripture reader is next week. So starting next week, whoever reads scripture gets to preach also. I've got a sign-up sheet right here if you'd like to sign up for that. 
So they had this cycle of readings that were likely scheduled, much like ours are. We don't know for certain, but there's reason to believe that this particular scroll of Isaiah was scheduled for that day. And Jesus happened to be there that day. And Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah. And then he said to them, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. Now, if you look at the scroll of Isaiah from chapter 61, you'll see that the portion that he read very closely resembles some verses from Isaiah 61. There's some differences, but one phrase in particular is not in Isaiah 61. It actually came from other parts of Isaiah, 35 and 42 to be exact, and some others, and that is recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus essentially reads this scripture from Isaiah and claims it as his mission statement. He's basically saying, this is what I have come to do. I have come to preach the good news to the poor, release to the captives, let the oppressed go free, and recovery of sight to the blind. Now, there's a temptation for us to conclude that Jesus is referring to literal economic poor or poverty or physical imprisonment and even literal blindness. But a short trip through the Gospels shows us that Jesus affected literal and physical situations, physical and spiritual, and literal and figurative. We could spend a sermon on each of these phrases. We're not going to do that today. But we could spend a sermon on each of these phrases. But since we talked about a miracle last week, we're going to draw from yet another miracle of Jesus that demonstrates how radical the claims were that he was making. The particular story about a blind man that we're going to draw from for today is found in the ninth chapter of John's gospel. Jesus is walking along, he and his disciples, and they encounter a man who's been born blind. He's been blind from birth, and by the time they see him, he's an adult. Now, the man doesn't actually ask to be healed from his blindness, tell you how it starts to begin with, but Jesus picks up some dirt, spits in it, rubs it together, puts it on the man's eyes, and tells the man to go and wash in a pool that was known for its uh, nutrients or its healing qualities. So the man does that. He comes back, and guess what? He can see. Now, you would think that that would be a cause for massive celebration. Who wouldn't celebrate a man who's been born blind who can suddenly see? Well, I'll tell you, four groups of people to be exact. The disciples themselves were a little iffy about this. The neighbors, people, the general public who knew this person, the religious leaders, and believe it or not, even his parents had a little reservation. So the first people to actually see this person are Jesus' disciples. They're the ones who call this person out to Jesus and say, who sinned to cause this man's blindness? They weren't in the least bit concerned, it appears, about helping the blind man, but more or less trying to figure out what happened. They wanted to enter into some philosophical or theological debate that quite frankly endorsed a way of thinking in the ancient world, and that was this. 
that if a person suffered some sort of physical or mental or some sort of malady of sickness of some sort, then it had to be because that person had done something wrong or maybe that person's parents. So what the disciples are trying to do is get Jesus to endorse this way of thinking. It was sort of a deep-seated religious explanation of, when we all do this, we try to make sense of things. And that was how they tried to make sense of things. It's called structural blindness. Some people have used that to call it structural blindness. It's the systems that we have in place that maybe ways we were raised, maybe things we were taught that we just, we don't even, we're not even aware how blind they make us to the things around us. But Jesus' response to them was, no one sinned. Not this man, not his parents. He responds to them and says, what matters is what God's doing through this. He essentially says, you're asking the wrong question. The blame game gets us nowhere. What matters is how the situation is responded to in an expression of love and mercy. The disciples wanted a theological debate. They wanted to be proven right. Jesus essentially says, this is not about who's right and who's wrong. doesn't matter. What matters is that love is extended. So then come the neighbors, the general public. These are people that have probably, Nazareth is a pretty small town actually. These are people who have probably known this blind man since he was born. They knew the blind man. They knew his family. Probably passed him on the way to the market every day and would see him begging. And now some of them are going, is that the blind beggar? How is it that he can suddenly see? Isn't that the guy who's been born blind? And so a lot of them say, no, can't be. This guy's all cleaned up. He can see. He's talking. He's not begging. Can't be the same person. Must, must be somebody who just looks like him. Can't be the same person. But even the man says, it, it's, it's me. It really is me. But they don't believe him. It's so unbelievable and so out of the norm that they frankly, no pun intended, couldn't see what was staring them in the face. So shocked at this unbelievable situation that they suffered from a blindness, what I call the filter of logic. It just didn't make sense. And so the way that they explained it was to say that it wasn't really him. This filter of logic prevented the people from seeing this radical new thing that God was doing. So everybody's confused. It's him, it's not him, how did it happen? And on it goes. So everybody's confused and no one can get to the bottom of it. So what do you do when you can't get to the bottom of something like this? You go to the experts who happened to be in that day the religious elite. The religious elite in this day for the Jewish people was a group of people called the Pharisees. They were really kind of a political party, but they were uh, religious fanatics. They were a by-the-book people, and they had one agenda, and that was to preserve the religious system at all costs, preserve the religious system. It was a system built on do's and don'ts and rules, and while it was intended for good, they had taken it to an extreme, and it actually offered them quite a bit of power and influence. 
and it ended up being rather oppressive for the average person. So you would think that the religious people, the people who claim to be followers of God, would see a man who's born blind suddenly able to see and they would celebrate. Not one of them celebrated. In fact, they condemned the man as a, as a liar and a lunatic and they basically claimed Jesus as an imposter. They suffered from religiosity blindness. Something that says, nope, nope, that can't be. You know why? Because Jesus didn't do it the way they would have done it. And he had the audacity to do it on what they called the Sabbath, a day that you would gather for worship. And their rules said, we don't do that. Jesus had done something new. And what's that phrase? We've never done it that way before. Anybody heard that? They were mad because Jesus had done something that had never been done that way before. They were so blinded by trying to preserve their religious system that they couldn't see what God was doing. So they too are thinking, all right, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's call the man's parents in. Now you would think that it would be the parents who would say, glory day, our little boy can see. Isn't this awesome? But they were scared. They were of the, the poor class who, albeit this religious system was somewhat oppressive, it did offer them a little bit of security, a little bit of survival. And they know that if they go against these religious elite leaders, they're basically on their own. So they say, that the, the question to, to them is, is this your son? And they said, yeah, that's, that's our son. And then the question is, well, how is it that he can see? And this is where they back up. You got to ask him. We're out. That's our son, yeah, but what he did and how this happened, we don't know. They don't even defend their own son out of fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of the new, fear of risks blind us. Now that's four examples of blindness. And we haven't even talked about the man who suffers from the literal physical blindness. We didn't even address him. He has a whole other testimony to this story. Four types of blindness and not even addressing physical blindness. Now, I'm no optometrist or ophthalmologist. We actually have two of those in our congregation. I don't, I don't know the number, the statistic of people literally blind, but I can look around and see that I think the majority of us in here are not. I see these four examples of couldn't just be talking about physical blindness. He had to be talking about suffering from spiritual blindness. I dare say his claim was as much, if not more so, about spiritual blindness, which forces us, if we're serious about following Jesus, if we're serious about being disciples of Jesus, it forces us to ask ourselves a few questions. From which of these four types of blindness do I, do you, do we suffer? Do I, do you, do we suffer from structural blindness, assumed, albeit maybe false teachings that have been handed to us through our families, 
through our unknown prejudices, through our comforts, even through our discomforts? Are there things that we've just grown used to that blind us to the realities around us? Do I, do you, do we suffer as the neighbors did from something that is completely unbelievable, such as completely unbelievable that God would actually love me? That God would actually love the person whom we assume is our enemy? That God would actually love a person who does wrong or who doesn't do what we think in our eyes? Do we suffer like the neighbors did from some completely unbelievable things? Do we suffer from not believing the miracle of transformation that Jesus would do in you, in me, in our community, in our church, in our world? Do we, do I, do you suffer from a desire to preserve the system, religious or any other system? Do we suffer from a desire to preserve the system at all costs? Do we suffer from the blindness of fear? Fear of the unknown, fear that risking doing something new might be a mistake or, oh my gosh, fear of risking doing something new might mean we were wrong about something else. The whole story of the blind man wraps up at the end of John chapter 9. I encourage you to go home and read John chapter 9. But it wraps up with Jesus saying these words. I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Here's the punchline. Those who admit or are willing to at least search out their own blindness will see the new thing that Jesus is doing. Jesus said, I have come to bring the recovery of sight to the blind. Oh, that we would allow Jesus to heal our blindness. If we would allow Jesus to heal our blindness, we might experience the transformed lives filled with the Holy Spirit to see the new thing, the new beginning that God has for our individual life, for our church, and for our community for the world. So I ask you, what is it in your life from which God wants to heal your blindness? What is your spiritual blindness holding you back from? What is our spiritual blindness as a church holding us back from? Oh, that God would recover our sight to us. Disciples of Jesus allow the Holy Spirit to recover their sight. What is it that you need sight recovered from or to or for? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Each week when we gather in worship, we do a thing that's called affirming our faith. We do this to remind us that we, the world, amazingly, doesn't revolve around us. We do this to remind us that we are a part of God's story, of God's people right here in this community and in this world. 
And so I invite you, if you feel so led, to join your voices in reciting what we call the Apostles' Creed. I believe we have the words on the screen. Will you join me? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you said those words for maybe the first time, I would love to have a conversation with you. We too often assume that everybody has already made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. If you are one who has not done that, I would welcome the opportunity to have a conversation with you. Please just stop me after worship or email me, whatever it may be. As we continue in worship, we continue by the giving of God's tithes and our offerings. When we give of money, I know we think it's our money. It's really God's money to begin with. It is an act of worship. It is a way that when we give out of our generosity, that's one of those ways that we begin to change on the inside. And we have many ways in which you can do that. You may text to give. You may give through... um, what's that called, bill pay online. For those of you in the building, there is a box at the back of the worship center. You're welcome to drop off your tithe and offering. And we also give by serving. We are a church who makes disciples of Jesus who love, grow, and serve. One very important way in this world, it's not a way that we really learned up until the last two years, is by offering online worship. And we have an opportunity for you to make disciples by operating a camera. Yes, operating a camera is a way of making disciples. So if you are interested in that, please see me or flag Brandon down uh, when he's downstairs, not when he's up there. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us again next week for Who Does He Think He Is? Jesus doesn't always tell us what we want to hear. Instead, he may tell us what we need to hear. When Jesus tells us what we need to hear, it may not feel so good. See you then.